0: In the past five plus years, the Lawrence Community and City Commission have been discussing and debating whether LFK ought to be a sanctuary city. Through the work of Sanctuary Alliance, Lawrence is getting closer and closer to being one of the few sanctuary cities in the Midwest. On this episode of Lawrence Talks, I am joined by Sanctuary Alliance organizer Mariel Ferrero. We discuss her experience of growing up in a migrant family in the Midwest, how those experiences shaped her activism, in the work of Sanctuary Alliance. The Lawrence Talks podcast is produced in part thanks to our partners at the Hall Center for the Humanities, IDRH, College of Liberal Arts and Sciences, and the KU Philosophy Department. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and online at lawrencetalks.org. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Lawrence Talks, a podcast dedicated to exploring local events and introducing philosophical and humanities topics to the general public. I am your host, David Thomas. Our discussion today focuses on the work of local community group uh, Sanctuary Alliance. Joining me to discuss their work and local events having to do with the with Lawrence's status as a san- uh, sanctuary city is uh, Mariel Ferreiro. Mariel, thank you for joining me today. Thank
1: you for having me, David. Um, we're very excited to be able to have this conversation with you.
0: Before we begin uh, discussing the work of of Sanctuary Alliance, I kind of want to started uh, start our discussion with uh, your story and and discussing who you are as a person and and your your own sort of personal personal story.
1: So, um, I am uh, originally from Dodge City, Kansas. That's where I grew up. So, Southwest Kansas. My family immigrated to the states in the mid nineteen eighties. As a product of both um, opportunity as far as job and housing goes, but also just the increased and no ever present violence that we see that's really pervasive in the country, that was a growing concern. And, and I think my parents just wanted the opportunity to have their children exposed to what they uh, envisioned the United States being, which was a country- would allow us to live more freely or have that that idea. And so growing up, um, kind of went through the naturalization process with my family. It took parents about 14 years to establish residency, file an application. And also during that time, it was kind of during the Reagan era and when Congress passed the first, uh, most comprehens- comprehensive children of those getting naturalized that were under 18 to be grandfathered in and get their citizenship. So, I was very young during this whole process, but kind of grew up with that understanding right away and that ideology of what it meant to kind of be on the outside <laughs> of society and just. Growing up with a, a different type of atmosphere. So, Dodge City is a very small town, but due to its industry of having beef packing plants, um, it attracted a lot of migrant workers and people from various countries. And at that time, uh, the migration pattern was more from Mexico. So, um, my father was first offered to work in the meat packing plants, and then uh, my mother and siblings up afterwards. So, um, growing up, it was because we were kind of the the first phase. That there was a, a large migration population of Vietnamese folks before us, and then um, uh, the, the more uh, Mexican or people from the south started migrating more. So, it, we kind of felt like the first. It was an interesting process in life, kind of starting with absolutely nothing and, and building to where family is today. I'm, I'm very proud of my parents' They They're kind of my inspiration for this work because of that sacrifice that they did for leaving our entire family. And nobody else lives in the States pretty isolated from my extended family. So that's always been difficult is we've had to really create our own families, our um, chosen families outside of returning to Mexico and and visiting as often as we could. So just growing up with that experience and then going on to, I moved to Wichita and um, studied at Friends University and actually studied music there. And the first time that I was really out of my element. We had built a community in dodge with a lot of other immigrant families, but this was the first time I was really on my own and in a very white-centered community. So that, that was more pervasive, but I could still see the need and the requirement to address a lot of the concerns around immigration and People feeling like they could be a part of the community and live freely and really not worry about the naturalization process, worry about immigration, especially in the last, you know, I would say back since 2013 and on. It has been a major focus um, on the national platform as well as the local. So I really um since I was a child, but more into my later adult years, really decided to dedicate myself to creating conditions for, for the immigrant and documented and migrant community that were better than what my family went through and my migrant uh, advocacy work.
0: Great. Thank you. One aspect of your story sort of resonates with me, or I mean, a great deal of it does. But when you talked about the Reagan years and that first comprehensive law Regarding uh, children and uh, children of immigrants, I know at least in, in the case of my my wife and her parents, her her mother kind of looks fondly on the Reagan administration for that reason. You know, Americans have have their you know reservations about about Reagan, obviously and uh, rightly so. But it, I was wondering if that's the case with with you and your fam- with your family as well that they kind of look kind of fondly on on, uh, on the Reagan administration for those for those reasons
1: yeah so um, it is really complicated right because uh, <laughs> while you know the Reagan administration the Reagan era was harmful for marginalized communities in a lot of ways war on drugs things like that is so pervasive um, I really more put my thanks on Congress and their willingness to pass comprehensive immigration reform that was that was more where I was focused in my later years I think my family and, and the Latino community at, at large really supported Reagan and where a lot of people from that community became Republicans in the first place they were there was a huge push from the Republican Party to engage these folks and I think that policy passing those that legislation passing kind of pushed that and so for a long time, my parents were uh, Republican, they're very Catholic, and that religion's very intertwined with the Republican Party. And so it wasn't until I think my siblings and I grew up and we're like, hey, let's reassess why and where these enticing, I guess, views from the Republican Party come from and what they're really trying to do. And is it really beneficial to us if it's harming so many other marginalized? But yeah, it was um, <laughs> they're very tempting in that time, and I think a lot of people are conflicted with with what happened during that time and going forward.
0: Yeah, no, I, I just thought that was when I first heard that it was it was very very interesting. I, I mean, it just brought to mind that some things are a little bit maybe nuanced, and we had to think kind of think through these uh, other people's experiences of of administrations, and and we had to be careful. I think as you as you point out, where do we put the praise? In these situations, is it Congress or is it, is it the executive branch? And I think definitely recently there, there have been, uh, there's been a, an awareness on my part to the topic of how we celebrate power, how we celebrate people, people in power and being careful about wh- who we put the, the praise on for policies that we do like, because it, you know we never know what those, what those intentions were in the first place.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's 100%. It's looking at um, the humanity of it all and understanding that a lot of times um, the best interests of the people aren't necessarily what's at play. It's just a byproduct. And so while we did see some really positive things come out of that uh, kind of amnesty and things like that, we did see a lot of the, the bad things happen. And I, I really connect it to um, the Obama administration and my qualms with, with that particular administration where Congress was at the time and nuances and understand that uh, when it comes to government and the way policies created and passed, it's almost seldom in this case really about the people and more about the interests. So that while that's not the most positive thing, it's kind of the reality and and something you really can't idolize uh, people, administrations, because, you know, sometimes they're they're not there for necessarily the good of the people so yeah that's that's taken a while but i think i can see my community starting to kind of turn away from that ideology and and be a little bit more critical in their assessment so
0: yeah and so the next question that i have or the sort of central question that i have lawrence has a certain status currently i believe it's it's referred to as a welcoming city if you could Draw out that distinction, and uh, what in sort of the important aspects of of why it's important that we move from a welcoming city what that and what what that means to to a sanctuary city
1: Sure. so um, it's all about legal binding policy. if I had to like really generalize it, those are the words I would use. Um, the welcoming city was a procla uh, when especially after um trump tried to um, uh, which affected a lot of the university students and um, caused the two university um, high school KU, their presidents, student body presidents to um, draft a letter. Uh, I think the a local high school was also in conjunction with that. And as well as community members kind of came together and said, hey, um, this is what we're seeing on the national platform. Um, we're not okay with this. And we want warrants to take a stand like so many cities are. And at that time, the goal was sanctuary city, but with kind of the antics that the administration was doing at the time, there was a threat of defunding um, money if a city were to declare sanctuary. And so, um, which was misinformation, that's unconstitutional, but at the time was not something that folks had really ever thought that it could be done, and especially in an executive order form. And so there was a lot of fear that was kind of spread through the community. Well, if we do this and we make this step, what are we losing? And that was really unfortunate because I think at the time, myself and a lot of community members were like, hey, actually, you know, this is unconstitutional. It's gonna get uh, struck down in in different court circuits. Like we, we know that this isn't true, but it just, I guess at the time, just wasn't the correct place to start. And so, we decided, okay, we're going to build off of that. We think that's a great thing. A proclamation is a wonderful thing to say, but we need to put what we say into practice. And how can we do that? Well, if we're going to go through our legal system and our justice system, it has to be a legal binding policy. So that that's really the, the biggest difference. It's saying and then it's saying and having something that is legally binding to
0: back it up, you in, in your answer, there's something interesting came out about uh, the whole uh, process of kind of, of policy making. And you, you said that you started you started out with the goal of bringing out or establishing Lawrence as a sanctuary city, but given the, the sort of rhetoric at the time and what was going on, had to I hate to say settle because it was it was very important that you came to to establish. What you did at the time, but it, it sort of speaks to the issue that we, or this practice in, in, in policymaking that sometimes we have to settle for the, again, I, I, I don't want to use this language because it's a goal a, that was shorter than, than uh, that fell shorter than the absolute goal that you had. So I was wondering what, what were your sort of insights generally about, about the whole uh, the process of policymaking? That, that
1: is true, and I think it, it's, it's hard to find words to adequately um, show that, because uh, yeah, it it wasn't settling, but I, I think I, I believe really strongly in the process of emergence and the process of doing things in a way that is community focused, that's listening to the community, that's understanding the needs and then directing language and making policy if that's the the route we're going that is really addressing and and helping and that will be beneficial and not just a blanketed statement because that's kind of where we started. And maybe that is what needed to get the conversation rolling. It actually wasn't until summer of last year that we got the ball rolling on um, creating policy and that in itself (laughs) was an adventure and a... um, a response to the increase of media attention on family detention and uh, folks just being like oh my goodness this is what's happening And for a lot of us who have lived through this, um, detention centers are not something uncommon. The treatment is definitely not uncommon. It's, you know, at at first I was like, well, yeah, (laughs) Um, welcome to the, welcome to our reality. But the ramping and the, the, I hate to use this for the efficiency that the administration was using to detain more families, that was something I had never seen. And so that was alarming to me. And I could see um, community members, especially allies, wondering what they could do. And Lawrence is, that's my home. And I think as being my home, I have the right to critique. (laughs) And that's a responsibility I have as a community member. And so I was in the space of being an organizer, a community organizer who's, who's tired of rallies was tired of marching and then going home. It was very unsatisfying. And I dedicated to my own satisfaction and to the satisfaction of the community and making sure that um, what we do, we do with purpose and not... And so I was approached by, and I, um, I'm sure she's okay with this, I was approached by Representative Eileen Horn who first came to me and said, hey, what can we do? So then I met with a couple of my community organizers who I've been working with for years. Some of them had work at at Appleseed, which is a local advocacy group. Um, And we talked about like, okay, this is our chance to really push Lawrence into doing something and changing the narrative of being performative into doing something that is actionable, something that will help. And so that did kick up of course we did have a rally to kick it off cuz we <laughs> have to get that community engagement and that was great i mean it, it i think we we raised money and created an emergency fund we collected people's information who wanted to help and that's really how sanctuary alliance formed was this really organic call to action and who's going to stick with that call who's going to be emergent with us in this process. Do the work. Yeah, it it kind of came from that and then was kicked into high gear when we had the incident last summer of ICE being in the community. And I think that's when city commissioners were like, oh, this is happening here. They're, They're not lying. Okay, we need to pay attention. And this group seems like the group maybe have that conversation with. So that was that was a, those two things were really big turning points and all happened within the last year. So good. And also that sense of urgency, I guess, was what triggered all of it for a lot of folks, which I'm thankful for, but also again, critiquing that process.
0: No, I, again, I think there's a lot there that, that you brought out that I've been saying in my head for the last few months, especially given the the sort of actions, the the marches and the the protests that have occurred just this summer alone, you said, you you mentioned that there's there's a moment where you have to move beyond the performative aspects. Because that's, if you want change, unfortunately, protests are limited in, in what they can bring about. I mean, they're great. They bring awareness. They do all these other things. But at the same time, what are your policy proposals? What are your what are your solutions what do you want to what do you want to bring about so i thought that i thought you brought that up pretty pretty well that there's the the marching and the and the protesting is important but at, at some point you have to turn it into positive action in some way and so i, I one other question or one other issue i wanted to also uh, include in our discussion are, is a discussion of the the facts or the in the numbers that people should should know National, not just nationally, but also uh, specific to Lawrence. What are what are some of the things or, or the the facts that that people should know about about Lawrence in relation to immigration and and um, and becoming a sanctuary city? I
1: think a lot of this for a lot of people is more national facing and they don't consider the reality that these are our neighbors. We did recently have, and in addition to the, uh, the ICE presence last summer, we had a community member who was detained and had a, a big movement within Lawrence to stop that deportation. It was a community member who was established had family had children here was an educator and who was taken into custody and that was i think the awakening for a lot of people that this does happen in our community though it it's not we're not a densely populated community when it comes to undocumented folks we still have about 4000 people that that could affect within the county and probably more if we consider population things like that and so While that's not, you know, in the tens or hundreds of thousands like larger cities, that's still people, and we still have to connect to the humanity of those people and their just them being and feeling safe within their community, and reminding people that immigration offenses are civil offenses. Like a parking ticket, like a speeding ticket. You know, they're not federal, or they're not criminal violations. And there's a very big difference there. And the administration currently has done a very good job of blurring those two lines and saying immigration is illegal, it is a crime, it is horrible. These are what people, this rhetoric that is being created that. You know, it said that we're, we're a bunch of criminals, right? Well, no, that's not true. And we've seen it in the data with sanctuary cities that crime rates actually go down and community involve, involvement goes up and engagement goes up. And if we want to create a future that is moving away from the idea of a carceral state, which is really, uh, I think, a goal of Sanctuary Alliance and, and tandem with the sanctuary city is to find new ways. If we want to envision that future, we have to start building it now. And so that's where the idea of establishing these policies and this accountability really came to fruition is we see the need in the community. We've had accounts of it that we have witnessed as community members and even if it's not often and that was a really big discussion with the lawrence police department like well this doesn't happen as often well we want to stop it from ever happening we want to be that community that shows that it's possible to protect each other so other communities in the state and the region and the country can see that that's a reality and see that community care and community accountability work. And so um, also we're, we're looking at this idea that it's a Latino uh, problem, right? <laughs> so that has also been a really interesting thing. And of course, you know, if you're within the community, you know that that's not true you know, that this is an everybody problem. Is it rooted in, in racism? Absolutely. I mean, you definitely don't see, um, a lot of folks who are not people of color, uh, really normal life and don't have to interact with federal enforcement or bad policing. Profiling has been a big thing we've seen in Arizona and we kind of saw it here. And so, you know, just kind of dispelling that, that, the undocumented population is so diverse and includes so many marginalized folks that this should really be something we're all collectively working on. I was just today thinking about, you know, the connections of this and the movement for Black liberation. That's something I also, you know, understand that, that my work and community organizing and doing immigration work is very tied to that movement of creating this equity and this liberation for the Black community. And then thinking, well, there's undocumented folks who are also Black. In fact, 44% of current folks in detention are Haitian descent. And so just knowing that, that's the highest percentage of the diverse groups in detention right now. When we think of it and the rhetoric we have heard is that it's <laughs> Mexicans, that it's people from South America. Um, I think it was referred to, and I don't want to curse on here, but, you know, asshole countries, <laughs> you know, and um, that, that reality of, of knowing that this movement of migration and these detainments of people is global And also, if you look into it and look into our history, a lot of it is caused by U.S. interference and U.S. going into um, different countries, supporting different governments. And so we really see how tangled up we are in this work and how global it is and how taking all of that, which is a lot, And bringing it back to our community and saying this still affects community members. This is still a reality for a lot of people in our community. And what can we do? We feel so small sometimes because changing on the national level takes a very long time. Our government was created to be slow. But local change, that is something that we can see maybe a little bit faster to process and really engage with and really have a say in. it's yeah, uh, probably going a little off topic, but kind of some of the, the imagery and realities I just wanted to share with, with folks is that it, it's not such a foreign issue. It's really right here, and we've seen it happen, and we can stop it, even if it doesn't happen that often.
0: Yeah, no, no, that's that was completely still very much on topic. It, it, there's You brought out this, this issue about the narrative that's dominating right now, and so and I, so, I wanted to bring up this uh, discussion about how much of the work you've done and how, uh, through through Sanctuary Alliance has been certainly there's there's the policy part, there's the activist part, but there's also this educational part. How how has that aspect gone, or how well has that gone? And what sort of efforts have you done to sort of educate uh, the public about about this topic? So
1: we have within Sanctuary Alliance, we kind of have these three working teams. We have our policy team that does all the research, kind of looks at the legal aspects, making sure that what we're doing is staying legal on the federal side. We also have our emergency fund and our um, emergency response team, so supporting folks who are affected by detainment or deportation and making sure that they are able to sustain themselves if that were to happen. And then we do have an education and outreach team who right now we're very much social media based Um, due to the pandemic. It's kind of limited us a little bit on our capacity to engage in a physical way with folks. But working with groups like Centro Hispano, working with Plymouth Church has been a a great group who has been organizing a lot of work already and offered to have us come and speak. We've had the Universal Unitarian Church, had one of our members come and speak on the history of Latin radicalism and how that ties and connects to the current migration patterns and how the U.S. is really intertwined in a lot of the Things that are going on right now that are causing people to migrate. I'll just say that. And so, what we try to do, um, and especially using social media platforms, I think right now we're we're really focused on Facebook. That's where um, what we do is we we try to share information. And so, we not only do it on the local by being really transparent with what we're doing, but also uh, share nationally what's going on. The most recent thing I can think about was when. ICE and DHS tried to ask foreign students to leave if they were not participating in in-person classes, deport them essentially, if they were not, or revoke their visa if they were not participating in in-person classes uh, at, the, at, at the college level. And that sent a shockwave through the community and we were would specifically called out the University of Ghana, we're seeing other colleges in solidarity with these students, what are you doing? About an hour later, we saw a press release stating that they, you know, don't condone this. And so, you know, it, it could have been connected. It could have not been. But I think that those things and getting that information out to community members and having the, the following that we do and really encouraging people to engage... And and read this stuff and educate themselves. We try to be as educational as possible and also uplift other organizations and community work that's going on in Lawrence. So people are really aware of what's of what's going on. And we're hoping post pandemic, whenever that happens, <laughs> that we can continue having some more community discussions that are you know uh, with people and connecting with people and having a little bit more discussion on that and really engaging folks. So what we try to do on the education side, I think it's, we tried to do that. And I think we did a great job. Uh, that was a big thing we had to do in the beginning, our very first meeting last year on October. Um, we had a whole presentation and facts and really, well, yes, was it was directed at the city commission. That was a platform for us to um, help uh, educate the community on some things that folks really haven't thought about and really don't know how how much immigration impacts their community. And so um, any platform we can <laughs> try to hop on and, and help folks, it's really an organic process, but uh, we're always reading and a lot of us, it impacts our lives directly. So we kind of don't have a choice but to stay up to date on it. Um, but yeah, that's our goal. I, I think education is Crucial in um, getting people to understand why uh, they need to be involved and they need to be community focused.
0: Yeah, I I remember that that first meeting last year. Anna and I sat in on uh, that day at the at at City Hall, and I just remember thinking to myself, "Wow, this is really thorough." Just how not only the information you provided, but with all the speakers that that were there, you had the uh, public service everyone from public services there to sort of say, yeah, this isn't going to affect our effectiveness all that much uh, if we're ready to be a sanctuary city, sort of just addressing every possible retort you could, you could possibly, anyone could possibly give. Obviously it's not going to stop people from trying to still provide retorts. In fact, I think it was the following, not the the following meaning that, meaning that dealt with, the sanctuary line or sanctuary city where people who disagreed up and voiced their, and voice their concerns, which is it's like, why weren't you there the, the first time? But, but I, I, I guess, so that gets me to one, did you, that, did did you notice that too? And, and two, an instance where you changed somebody's mind or somebody came up to you and it's like, yeah, I, I, I thought this way. And, and now you totally like, in your thoroughness, just showed me the way, just, I just changed my mind.
1: Yeah. I think that, that meeting in particular was, was tough. I think, especially for the marginalized folks that were present because a lot of it was um, just really harmful rhetoric, just, you know, things that folks see in media consumption that rather than doing the work themselves, really just kind of latch on to like headlines or tweets or things like that. And so it it was not the the best atmosphere to be in, but what we kind of did, and I I have to thank a lot of the, the team members because we have folks who are really like doing the digging, doing the research and making sure that we are covering uh, as much information as we can and making it understandable and palatable to, you know, community members who sometimes, you know, legal jargon is <laughs> not comprehensible. It's um, definitely designed to that way um, and not accessible. And so what we really tried to do was make information accessible. And so when we did have folks come up in public comment and say, you know, this is why I don't support this, you know, for a number of reasons. What we did is we just had people come right after them with a public comment and say, you know, uh, actually, this is the the real um, data and this is actual educational piece we want to provide you. Here's where we got it from. We just want you to know that what you're saying is, is not the reality. Um, and a lot of it circulates around, again, that false narrative of immigrants Stealing jobs, taking up resources, being criminals—all of those things, not contributing, which is so false. Um, the amount of taxes that <laughs> the undocumented community pay alone are more than you know the top one percent of uh, wealth earners. Yeah, that was that was tough, but I, I think that the the best thing you can do in those situations is is provide the the real information, the research and Sometimes the personal experience, I know that, so the most recent time, (laughs) I felt that I personally encountered somebody who just wasn't on the same page as I I was regarding this, was actually during our last city commission meeting. Yeah, if if folks watched that, that was uh, four hours of really intense question and it was good, it was good conversation, but there was one point where we were talking about racial profiling and the need for law enforcement to contact the, uh, to ask immigration status. And what I, after, you know, stating over and over again, you know, how that implication actually causes more harm than good, asking somebody their citizenship status, my, I guess, natural next step was to talk about that personal experience of, you know, when you're pulled over by a police officer, especially if you're undocumented, the last thing you want to do is tell them you're undocumented. And that is because of the way that ICE, especially the creation and the wild antics that ICE are are currently participating in, that has created a a realm of, of distrust. And um, that distrust in law enforcement has, is historical and is deeply embedded in our, in our society. And I, I think that hearing that reality and hearing, maybe hearing my reaction to it, that, uh, no, I'm, that, that's not something I, I would find helpful to tell a police officer because of the experience of this, this uh, federal enforcement you know, disguising themselves as law enforcement, acting as if they are uh, or have the authority to work with and do anything with our local law enforcement. I think giving that real, uh, real person who constantly has to be on their guard about their citizenship status, how that is just something that is is not safe and not necessary and has to do with profiling. And so I, I think that's my most recent story, of course, there's countless, you know, accounts that I can think of where and most of them have been kind of, you know, aggressive <laughs> folks yelling at me, you know, or at uh, folks that I organized with just saying, you know, we're way off base, trying not to react in a way that is reflecting that anger. But I think sometimes speaking from experience and giving that opportunity for the person who disagrees with you to have a glimpse to your humanity and understand that we're creating all of this stuff to dehumanize people, to take away their value of life and reduce them down to what their you know capital value is, or what you know is considered legal or not, what the boundaries of borders are. Um, really trying to reduce it down to the fact that you're talking about a person who has a lot of similar struggles, who intersects with a lot of similar struggles you do. And if I can give that personal touch, um, though sometimes it's traumatizing or re-traumatizing, I think it's important in the work. And I think I have the capacity and the spaces a lot of my fellow organizers do to to do that and to kind of give that platform for other folks to be able to tell their stories and to um, empower themselves with knowing that me telling my story is something that I can be okay with. Um, I can live in that truth and also hopefully uh, educate and empower someone else to help me and use their privilege, leverage their privilege to, you know, rehumanize our our community.
0: Yeah. I think that's, to me, and having these, and having these conversations it's important. It's been important that, at least the way I try to form formulate the conversations uh, and discussions when it comes to immigra- immigration is, at the end of the day, you have to remember we're dealing with humans. Uh, we're dealing with people who have who have serious concerns about where they are currently living and the safety of their children, um, the safety of their families, and any other family, uh, whether whether it's someone. You know, the United States or not they just want to be in a better situation than than their left wing and and it's not like they're coming specifically for you know you know that we've used, i mean you've heard the rhetoric of invasion of of a tidal wave of of immigrants coming and it's like it already there you get a you get a, you know you get this picture of people just trying to take over and one other one other sort of misconception that you may you may be able to to address, or uh, if we if we can't speak to this, there's there's this sort of conversation about immigrants having different values than than Americans, and that they're going to change fundamentally change the makeup of America because they're coming in with different values. I I don't have. I mean, I'm speaking person uh, personally and and to our. To our own, my own story of, you know, what my parents believe, what my wife's parents believe, and if there's anything that may be contrary, but this to American values, this is debatable. But we might be more collectively thinking than 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 individualistic thinking. Immigrants, some that some immigrants tend to be, but uh, other than that, I don't don't know often what they what values they're speaking of that are that immigrants have or, that are contrary to. But yeah, I, I don't know if you uh, can speak to that sort of that issue that people have often brought up too.
1: Yeah, the idea of invasion, I think also is a dehumanizing word, just like calling us aliens, just like calling people illegal. It's that way of dehumanizing. And I think, oh, and, you know, I, I can't speak necessarily to what these values are because I'm I'm still confused as <laughs> to what they are. I've, I've heard that. um stated before and have asked okay what are these values and a lot of the response i get is well working hard providing for our families making it on our own and not being dependent on you know government resources and the, you know my answer is yeah that that's our community too and i would challenge the the that rhetoric was saying well look at it's usually more of a, unfortunately, a race uh, discussion because I, I don't see them people of color who are who are immigrants because I, I would say to a lot of those people, I'm sure not too long ago your ancestors were immigrants. We are on occupied land. And especially for for my my people and where geographically we were located before colonizers came to the United States, we were pushed out of this country. And so uh, that saying the we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us is a reality for a lot of these so-called, you know, invaders of this territory. And you know, just to kind of to think on that and to have folks marinate on the fact that, you know, at one point in time, whether or not it was the exact same path or if there are similarities or intersections, your ancestors were in the same boat. And unfortunately probably did some pretty crappy things to get to that point. And so these American values are built upon um, so much, I would say, history that folks aren't willing to bring up the genocide of native peoples, the um, enslavement and capture of, of black people. And, and where where is that conversation along with your idea of value? And I think I saw this a lot when I was growing up in Dodge um, Probably my later high school years before I went off to college, we had a um, had worked out with the city to have a refugee program where the meatpacking plants and the city kind of worked out this contract to take in immigrants, and a lot of them were from Somalia, which is a very different culture, a very different community, and I saw a lot of that rhetoric from my own community um, just challenging their culture, challenging their way of living. And it was like, wow, look in the mirror because not too long ago, folks were doing the exact same thing to you. And so I think it's this ideology of being afraid of different cultures and being afraid of the unknown and not willing to accept that and that is severely rooted in this white supremacy ideology that there is one, one type of way to be and if you're not that way, if you don't look that way, if you don't act that way, if you don't come from this or that, then you are other and you are not supposed to be here. I felt that a lot in when I was growing up that I was definitely different. And I was definitely not, I was definitely othered a lot. And so it was kind of, that kind of cemented in my mind, okay, I cannot do this to other people. And I, I would never want somebody else to feel that way, to feel like they just didn't belong. And so I, I really I struggle with, with people who have that ideology because I don't think they've really sat down and thought about what are my values and is my country really reflecting those values? Because I think if we take a really good hard look about at what the United States is currently doing a lot of those values are, are being shifted and changed into something I don't think people agree with other cultures because a lot of the American culture comes from other cultures. <laughs> yeah, we have definitely uh, are intertwined. And so, yeah, I, I have I an issue with that. But of course, you know, it's it's all about really asking people to think about what they're saying and really sit with what they're saying because... When you do, I think you you start to deconstruct that right away and be like, "Wow, am I really? uh, Do I really think this? Or what really are my values, and are they being reflected in my country? That if you love this country, you have a right to critique it."
0: Yeah, no, agreed, and and I think what gets missed in the in these conversations about you know what are the values of America, whatever you know, these quintessential American values that people speak of, it's like there's definitely th- these stated values that that maybe are the best and ideal values to have in in a, in a country, you know, free speech, uh, freedom of religion, privacy, so on and so forth. But then there's a disconnect between those stated values and uh, the values that are represented in the policies that we enact. Um, and so I think it's, and, and part of doing away with that disconnect is what you just brought up is this site critiquing critiquing our our country critiquing our uh, it's not so that's another that's another sort of concern of mine is like it's not critiquing the country per se it's critiquing the people that run it because it's it's people who make these laws and it's people who put different values or try to represent different values in, into these laws and so it's really critiquing them and not so much the the, the country itself but it's, that's neither here nor there I want to get to the policies, the specific policies that the city is considering, and that and the, and the policies that you've uh, that Sanctuary Alliance has recommended. Could you speak to 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 those? So, um,
1: like I said, this has probably been about uh, it's been over a year now. <laughs> um, when we come back, of, of processing and looking at how to make this idea of sanctuary city a reality because um, the term sanctuary city is not a, it doesn't have one single definition, right? It, uh, the overall is that is it is a city or community that protects community members regardless of their immigration status. And so what we did as Sanctuary Alliance is we really dug deep into what that means. And we looked at other communities looked deeply into communities in California, um, looked at New Orleans was a big inspiration for us and where we pulled actually a lot of policy language from and other communities. We we thought, well, um, there's a wealth of knowledge out there and we don't want to reinvent the wheel. We want to adjust these policies to fit our reality in our community. Um, and so with City Commission granting that city staff look at and review and use us as consultants to start drafting that policy. Really it was looking into each department that the city has and seeing, is it one, is it accessible to all community members? And two, is it doing anything that would challenge the safety of community members? So the first part was, and with most departments was fairly easy. was you know, does each this does each department serve the community in as deep of a capacity as it can? And that really um, translated to, do we have interpreting and translation services? or is the language that we provide in different languages? How do we connect with more community members? So we had a deep conversation about that. and I think um, a lot of the city ordinance, really reflects that and shows that, okay, here's some, some guidelines here. You should have translation services. You should try to make things as accessible as possible as far as um, utilities and what we require for that. What are the requirements? Are they uh, based on things that we truly need, information we truly need, or is it just this uh, blanketed requirement um, that... You know, isn't accessible to everyone. And a lot of that was circulating around IDs and identification. And so we really focused on how can we make language that does give the, the city the information they need, but doesn't go to a place where it's inaccessible. Um, and so that was uh, a really, really good conversation. And I think it allowed a lot of people in sanctuary lines to really see what the policy writing process was for the city. What We kind of took a deep dive into what each department does, what their administrative policies are, and how we could fit that into ordinance. Then we looked at, okay, do we have any practices or can we write things that would protect the community? And of course, the big department we were looking at was obviously the police department. They are the group that was in the most contact with community members and also just with the, the national rhetoric and the power that a lot of federal enforcement have. We wanted to analyze and see what their relation was, what they were currently doing, and what we could put into legal binding ordinance. Um, I think that portion was the one that took, that is taking the longest because, um, as I mentioned before, we're we're reimagining a different way of um, community accountability and community safety. Um, I think this conversation is very pervasive, very relevant right now with folks talking about um, police and what that means. Is that something that our community wants? And so I think we really challenged the Lawrence Police Department and saying, "What practices are you doing right now, and can you firmly commit to protecting all people?" And I, I don't think they had been asked that question specifically before. And I, I, it has to do probably with the history of what policing is like, where it came from, and the power that police departments have in their community, which is an immense amount of power. Um, that was our biggest struggle, <laughs> is that they have so much power within the community. And that was really um, pressing hard on city commissioners because they do hold the power to hold accountability for that police department. At first, it was, I mean, and it has been, well, it's been good in what we've had really great relationship building that has been kind of the difficult spot. So currently we have the proposed ordinance and also a police administrative policy and the creation of that, and we're, we're very happy to see that the police department is creating their own internal policy. However, where we're at right now, as the ordinance stood before our last meeting, the reference for department practices for the police department was simply, please see the police administrative policy, which the thing about that is from the jump, from the beginning, we said we want landing policy administrative policy and department policy is not legal binding it can be changed at any time it's at the discretion of the department and a lot of the times the department can change that policy without notifying anyone so we saw that as okay now we're missing the accountability piece if we just say you know the police department is just putting their best practices in the their administrative policy and that's it well that could change at any time. And so we had a real issue with that. And I think that's where the the kind of the crux <laughs> of the discussion or the you know the crescendo of the discussion really came through was really starting to um, critique policing and critique the community power they hold and giving them that experience. We have members of Sanctuary Alliance who, come from really diverse spaces and the smaller group that has been working with city staff and with the police department, we're all women, (laughs) most of us women of color. And so really giving our experience and and talking about how maybe they perceive their community work is not the reality that we see. And I think that was difficult to digest because it's not a, a pleasant reality to Listen to um, when you're talking about police violence, profiling, racism, things that are very pervasive in police departments and are really pervasive in the Lawrence Police Department, unfortunately. And so we had to have those hard conversations. And at the end of those conversations, what we decided as an organization was to suggest um, provisions within the city ordinance, kind of as guidelines or a structure that the police department would have to follow in writing their policy. And so those were um, very concrete ideas, um, You know, not asking immigration status, notification, just really um, deep conversation on here's the structure, here are the provisions that you have to include in writing your policy for this to truly be a safe, city to truly call ourselves a sanctuary city. And so I think that that kind of shook the boat a little bit and was the big discussion um, at the last meeting. And we did have a lot of conversation around it because um, I think they felt that we spread this on them a little bit. But I think through the entire process, we were very um, forward in saying, this is where we stand. We need the legal binding language in order for this to be effective. And so you know, committing to that and making sure that uh, the police department is held accountable is really important. And so, at that meeting, last our last meeting, what was discussed was were those provisions specifically in the ordinance, and what we were encouraging and really saying is this is the language that we think is appropriate. We think it's broad enough to um, give you room in your administrative within your department. And it gives accountability to your department who is directly uh, involved with community contact and more than likely would be contacted by a federal enforcement or ICE if something were to come. It was uh, approved uh, with some contingencies that we would review a piece in that section regarding notification. And I, I really think that that stems from we're creating something new. And in that creation, we're going to have to challenge the things that we do now. And I, I think that was maybe the struggle with the police department is, well, we don't do that. How are we going to do that? <laughs> and we came back with, well, this is your, what the community is asking for. Um, let's figure it out together. Or, you know, Let's look at other communities and really um, try to make this a reality because, yeah, that's where we're at right now. And we're hopefully going to have that second read-through, get that last piece solidified, and then the ordinance will be complete. So that's where we're at.
0: Well, one final thing before this discussion has been very, very illuminating and very, very interesting for for a number of reasons. And uh, I know if I've had you going for for quite some time now and and i think like you um i've i have my ac off as well during this whole time and so i want to end this off on a sort of either a hopeful note or just anything that you think it's important to get across to uh, anyone listening and things that we folks should weigh from from our conversation sure. um
1: first thank you i think this was um a wonderful opportunity and um, talking to the the group about this we're we're a group of volunteers a collective of organizers and people from last year and before that who really wanted to see uh, and envision something different for the community and something that's really focused on community safety and accountability and um just kind of that, that shift. We're starting to see on the national level, but really see if we can test it here at a local level. So we're really thankful for that. I think that we're we're operating out of a space that is really non-traditional for a lot of people. And so we've had folks that are like, well, you know, well, what is this structure? What is Sanctuary Alliance? And to them, I would just say we're a group of community members. We are a group of people who have had these experiences and have been uh, kind of the discussion, the person who's had most conversations publicly, but I will say that I'm so thankful for the group members, for every single person who's volunteered, who's reached out to us, to people who have challenged us and asked us to do more. I'm internally grateful for that because I, I can't represent all, all community members and we as Sanctuary Alliance, we don't have that capacity to represent everybody in every um, facet, and so we encourage that conversation. And we are going to keep pushing and challenging the way that um, the way that community safety has been um, functioning for you know the last few centuries. And I, I think, if anything, one of my Uh, mentors. Her name's uh, Miriam Kaba, and she's a a transformative justice person and a facilitator. And um, she was recently kind of discussing policing, which is really intertwined with um, immigration, and and said, you know, the last couple centuries, we um, did this experiment, this experiment of policing, this experiment of federal enforcement, and it hasn't been working for everyone. It's not inclusive for everybody. Um, So why can't we start a new experiment? And so that that is kind of the core of what drives me as an organizer. And I think something that for Sanctuary Alliance is a really big thing. We want to try this new experiment and really center people and really center humanity. And right now, we have to work through the structures and through the systems that were created because we have to build things as we think about dismantling things that don't serve us. So yeah, I think that's, uh, it's maybe a radical idea for a lot of people and that's understandable because we're challenging what's considered normal and what's considered socially acceptable. But I think if you really look at the work, if you really look at the policy that we're trying to advocate and fight for, it's really to protect people, all people. We, We say it Pretty much it's our tagline at this point <laughs> that we say sanctuary is for all. And we we truly mean that. We cannot move forward if we're leaving people behind. And so that that's what, what the goal is right now is to find a way. And this is the start of that. This is not the perfect answer for it. And that may shift and change, but we're ready for that as well. And we're um, open to exploring different options. So... Um, just being comfortable with that that change and being comfortable with kind of dreaming the future that we want
0: to see. Well, Marielle, uh with that, I want to thank you uh, so much for coming on and and uh, discussing the work that you do and uh, and everyone that that is part of Sanctuary Alliance. All the work that that you all do, I think it's. Wonderful work to highlight, and that uh, that's part of what I I find importance and and want to do with with Lauren Stocks is highlighting the important work that people in our community are doing to imagine what uh, a just community looks like. And so, uh, again, I just want to thank you for for coming on and and giving voice to to the work that you do. Thank
1: you so much. Appreciate you very much, and Lauren Stocks. Yeah, look forward to hearing this. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Well, and uh, with that, thank you all for for listening, and we'll see you on, on the next show of Lawrence Talks.